May it please the court, my name is Prentice Cox. I represent Daniel Engstrom, the appellant here and the plaintiff at the trial court. There's one legal issue for resolution in this case, which is whether Engstrom properly pled injury within the meaning of the private attorney general statute for purposes of a Rule 12 dismissal. Engstrom's position is that he suffered injury when he retained an attorney to investigate and resolve a fraudulent demand by White Birch a demand that Mr. Engstrom either pay it money on the one hand or on the other hand, execute a series of real estate conveyance documents, have them notarized and send it back to White Birch along with a death certificate. In July of 2015, Daniel Engstrom's mother, Deborah Engstrom, passed away. In August of 2016, Daniel Engstrom received a demand letter from White Birch. The demand letter was short and it was unambiguous. Mr. Engstrom co-owned a timeshare. The letter said that his mother had added his name to the deed in 2001 and that the deed was, quote, filed with the county, end quote, and was Torrens property. So, quote, so both Deborah Engstrom and Daniel Engstrom own this timeshare, end quote. Even White Birch's briefs in this matter show that these are false statements. Engstrom knew his mother owned a timeshare, but he believed, correctly it turned out, that he was not a co-owner. His mother never told him that he owned this timeshare. He never got the deed. He never got a tax statement. He never got a maintenance fee statement. No indication at all that he was co-owner until he received the demand statement, the demand letter. And the demand letter from White Birch was <clears throat> unequivocal. You own this timeshare, and so you must accede to one of, two, of these two demands. And the demands were relentless. In November of 2016, Mr. Engstrom received an invoice for $1,300. In December of 2016, he received an invoice for $1,900. In January of 2017, White Birch admitted in an email to counsel, which is in, noted in the complaint, that, uh, in fact, the property was, the deed was not registered um, and making the demand letter, in fact, false. But it continued to insist that Mr. Engstrom either pay it money or execute a series of real estate conveyances. By May of 2017, it threatened to take Mr. Engstrom to court now for over $2,000. Engstrom counsel, hired an attorney. Counsel, do you have uh, the complaint with you? I do, Your Honor. Could you just identify for us um, the paragraphs in the complaint where you contend your client alleged injury sufficient to withstand the motion to dismiss? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Um, the uh, complaint alleges that um, Mr. Engstrom hired an attorney. Uh, the, the specific paragraphs. There's not a specific allegation in the complaint that Mr. Engstrom retained an attorney, um, that injury flows from Mr. Engstrom retaining an attorney, but it's implicit uh, throughout the complaint, and it's a reference in the complaint to Mr. Engstrom hiring an attorney to investigate the matter. When it was before the trial court level, the trial court judge, Sua Sponte, said uh, in response to a question about this question of injury, said, well, he had to hire an attorney. 
um, and uh, Mr. Engstrom's trial court attorney specifically said injury flowed from his having to hire and pay me uh, to represent him to investigate and resolve this matter. That was at the hearing? That was at the hearing, Your yeah, Honor. Okay. In the complaint, it's clear that in response to, uh, in response to the allegations, uh, in response to the fraudulent demand, um, Mr. Engstrom hired an attorney to investigate and resolve the matter, and in pair, sure, sure, and in um, <clears throat> let's see, and uh, there's a reference to the January tw 2017 email communication. Uh, with counsel in paragraph to, 37. Are you referring to 38 and 39 in the complaint? Uh, I'm sorry, Justice. Are you referring to 38 and 39 where there is an email that says that it was, which was sent to Engstrom's counsel on January 17th, 2017? Uh, yes, Justice. Paragraphs 37 through 39, I believe. Uh, catalog the back and forth between Mr. Engstrom's attorney and White Birch um, uh, regarding this matter. And in the complaint, it alleges that he was damaged, um, which under group health is sufficient. <clears throat> Engstr when Engstrom hired an attorney to investigate and resolve the fraudulent demand, um, he suffered injury. And the question presented here which is whether hiring a counsel to oppose this fraud is injury under section 8.31 subdivision 3A resolves in favor of Engstrom on every level of customary statutory interpretation analysis. In terms of the plain language, the term injury is separated from the three remedies identified. Any person injured by a violation of the Consumer Fraud Act may sue for damages, dot, 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 attorney's fees and equitable relief. Minnesota has adopted a permissive form of a private right of action. Every state has a UDAP statute, and now every state has a private right of action for a UDAP statute. The majority rule is that the injury is specified as one form of monetary property loss, monetary damage, et cetera. But Minnesota has the most permissive form of that, stating only that the plaintiff must be injured by a violation. So is it your position that the um, allegation at the end of the complaint that your client was damaged, is that sufficient to satisfy the injury element of the private attorney general statute? Yes, it is in the context of a detailed complaint that sets forth, uh, you know, the, the actual underlying facts. Here we're on a Rule 12 motion. So any set of facts consistent with uh, the theory of damage uh, constitutes injury. Um, and, and here we have injury uh, under any of the, any of the uh, traditional levels, customary levels of statutory analysis. <clears throat> uh, again, on a Rule 12 motion, on a Rule 12 motion, um, it, it, it's important that uh, we look at the complaint in the context of all, not only all the allegations in the complaint, not only all the implications in the complaint, uh, in favor of the plaintiff, as you would on summary judgment, but here, uh, any set of facts, any set of facts that could, as this court has held in Walsh, that could be construed 
uh, in support of the theory put forth by the plaintiff. Minnesota case law also strongly supports finding the uh, uh, injury in this case. The group health case unequivocally held that Minnesota's private right of action under the Consumer Fraud Act um, supports is broader than common law fraud, and damages should not be interpreted uh, as the common law fraud damages should not be the standard by which we interpret the phrase injured by, or in this case, injured. Furthermore, for 30 years, the Court of Appeals case in Love v. Amsler has stood for the proposition that retaining an attorney to oppose a fraudulent demand is sufficient to constitute injury. The purpose of the statute, the third level of statutory analysis, also supports finding injury in this particular case. The private right of action, quote, reflects a clear legislative policy encouraging aggressive prosecution. Counsel, if I may, um, going back to uh, group health, um, I think it, it clearly um, stands for the proposition that you've just stated. But there's also language near the, there's also language near the end of the, the opinion talking about the requirement of that uh, a legal nexus between the injury and the defendant's wrongful conduct. Um, so tell me here what that legal nexus is, because your opponent is going to get up and say essentially what they said in their brief, which is there is not that causal uh, uh, connection. So I'm curious, I, I, I'm hoping you can articulate for me, in your view, what is that legal nexus? Um, first of all, Justice, the uh, causation was not argued here. Uh, the, this opinion coming up all the way through the trial court, the Court of Appeals, there was no, no decision about causation. The decision here was on whether it, one is injured by hiring an attorney in response to a fraudulent demand, not causation. So I don't think that issue is properly before the court and we've not had a chance to brief it. That being said, the causal nexus here is plain. Uh, Mr. Ingstrom was sent a fraudulent demand telling him he was co-owner of this timeshare and he had to either pay money or he had to sign this set of real estate conveyance documents. And his response to that was to hire a counsel. But for the fraudulent demand, he would not have had to hire a counsel. The causal nexus here meets any standard of causality, even a more traditional one. <clears throat> Um, the purpose of the statute also has been held to eliminate financial barriers and provide incentive for prosecution. It is necessary to remedy unequal bargaining power. All of these propositions regarding the purpose of the combination of a private right of action and the Consumer Fraud Act have, uh, support the finding of injury in this case. Finally, there's also on-point cases from other jurisdictions particularly the Panag case and the McDonald case from the state of Washington. These are directly on point. In fact, Ingstrom has a better case for injury here than in either of those situations. Counsel, can you help me with the um, legal theory here about uh, the wrongdoing that um, a white birch here was doing? I mean, I, 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 having read the complaint, I'm, I'm not quite clear on exactly um, what is supposed to have been occurring here? You're alleging it's a, that others are more broadly affected, for example, than just your client. And I'm just wondering what, what, how, this, how this scam, if it is a scam, was supposed to work. 
Yes, Your Honor. Um, the complaint alleges, you can essentially think of it as two levels here. The first one is that Mr. Ingstrom was sent a demand letter that said unequivocally, without uh, any doubt, you are co-owner of a timeshare, and thus you have to take one of these two actions. It is simply not true that he was co-owner of a timeshare. In fact, even after White Birch knew that, even after it knew that the deed was not registered with the county, it continued. No, is it just, just as a way of getting clear on the record, is, is it undisputed that um, your client's mother's signature is on the deed in question? Is that, is that fact undisputed? Uh, there is no signature by Deborah Ingstrom on the deed, Your Honor. Uh, I mean, not from Deborah. That's your allegation. I mean, from the, uh, from the vendor. Uh, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Could you repeat that? I didn't understand the last phrase. Is it, is it undisputed that there is a, there is a deed that runs to um, your client's mother and your client, I guess is what I'm saying. There is such a document. Am I right about that? Uh, we allege that document is fraudulent, Your Honor. So, so it, it operates essentially on two levels. And I, we believe this court can decide it on both, but particularly either. Um, Mr. Ingstrom was told he was co-owner of the timeshare because there was a registered Torrens deed with the county, and that's simply false, and that's as far as you need to go to find injury for the narrow purpose of, or the purpose before the court, of interpreting the term injured within the meaning of the private attorney general statute. There is a broader context here, though, and the broader context is that we have eight specific reasons that this deed uh, is suspicious and fraudulent. Uh, and we've identified all eight of those reasons in our uh, particular complaint. Among them, that uh, the deed was never delivered, that um, Mr. Ingstrom was never told that he was a co-owner, that the notary here had been suspended, had her license suspended for falsely dating documents, that uh, she misspelled her own name, that her uh, notary license was invalid, and the other reasons listed in the complaint. And if you put those together, particularly as a veteran of the foreclosure crisis, this is a series of screaming yellow and red flags uh, to suggest that there's a fraudulent deed. And counsel, of course, we're here on a motion to dismiss. So. Um, as I understand it, this is not a summary judgment motion, so we're not looking at the merits. We're accepting all of this as true for, for the purposes at this early stage of litigation. Am I, am I right about that? Uh, yes, Justice. This is a Rule 12 motion. So not only are we accepting all of this as true, we're accepting not only that, that all of this is true, not only that all the implications are in favor of the plaintiff, as we would on a summary judgment motion, but that any construction of the facts uh, that would support this uh, theory uh, is sufficient to, to find, uh, you know, to find that a fraud occurred here. So there's Counsel, ample... The, the only um, reference in the complaint that I can see to the fact that your client had counsel is in paragraph 38... Um, and the sentence is, however, in a subsequent email from defendants to Daniel Angstrom's counsel, defendants changed their story. So am I, am I miss, is there anything else in the complaint that references the fact that your client hired a lawyer? Uh, I believe the answer to that question is no, Your Honor. Okay. So, so how then does... 
the sentence that I just read, uh, I, I, mean, I mean, I might agree with you that injury under the private attorney general statute, that if there is an allegation that because of fraudulent statements, I had to go out and hire a lawyer to defend myself, to investigate, for example, if the, to find out if, really, if there's truth to the allegations and the demand. That might be an injury under the statute, but, but counsel, I just don't see that you alleged that, and, and that's what I need you to help me with. And I don't mean you personally, but I just don't see the complaint alleging that theory. Uh, the complaint does not expressly allege that theory, Your Honor. So then the question would become, is it necessary in a complaint to specifically allege every theory that would support it if it's argued at the trial court? Well, but you have to allege something. I mean, even under our very uh, low pleading, what I will call low pleading, you have to allege something. Well, we, we allege damage and we set out the scheme. And at the trial court, it was argued, certainly, if this case is remanded, we would, at this very early stage, at the very preliminary stage of, this pleading, of the pleadings, of the litigation, we could amend our pleadings and make the specific allegations we now make before this court. And there's no reason to hold that because that particular sentence was not in the complaint is to encourage litigants to litter their complaints with every possible theory they could think of <laughs> because they're going to be held to exactly that. And I, I don't think that's the standard on Rule 12. We've alleged damage. It was set forth before the trial court. It was argued at the trial court expressly. And therefore, is there, any, is there any case law to support the assertion that I don't put it in my complaint, but I bring it up at oral argument on a motion to dismiss, and so therefore it's... It, what I say at oral argument is somehow deemed to be part of my complaint. Is there any case law that supports that theory? Uh, there's the case law that suggests, and I don't have a specific site, Your Honor, but there's the case law that suggests on Rule 12 that you certainly have the right to amend your complaint to consistent with your argument. Um, I, I don't think that Rule 12 requires that every argument you make before the trial court on the motion to dismiss be specifically referenced in the complaint, as long as you have the right to amend the complaint. Uh, and if we uh, remanded, we would amend the complaint to make that specific allegation. Another way to think about that is when we all know that that's possible, this is the very beginning of the proceeding, uh, nothing's been invested other than the motion to dismiss, do we say to plaintiff's attorneys, well, if you forgot to say the particular magic words and sentences, your complaint is gone? And I don't think that is the Rule 12 standard. Um, that, this was argued clearly before the trial court. It was decided on that opinion. It's exactly what the Court of Appeals decided on. And uh, we'd be happy to amend the complaint if it's remanded. Um, the brief here also lays out the broader scheme that I alluded to in response to Justice Anderson uh, regarding the fraudulent deed and the other reasons that support finding injury in this case. Thank you, Your Honor. I reserve 15 minutes for Counsel, one, one question in your last 45 seconds. As I'm looking at the complaint, count five is the fraud claim, and that was dismissed by the, the district court, was it not? It was, Your Honor. All right. Paragraphs 107 and 108, it looks like uh, your client is alleging that the defendant's false representations caused Engstrom to act in reliance and refers to defending assertions. Is that implicitly a reference to incurring legal fees to defend a claim? 
Thank you, Your Honor. Yes. Well, but it's been dismissed. <laughs> so would, yeah. would your client want leave to him back in the district court? Would your want, client want leave to amend to make sure those allegations are incorporated in the counts that re, counts that remain? Yes, Your Honor. We could incorporate those allegations in the in count one and two. Thank you, Counsel. You have 15 minutes for rebuttal, Mr. Vonkorf. Good morning. May it please the court. I'm Gerald von Korf, representing White Birch. The district court's findings that Engstrom failed to meet the section 8.31 injury requirement actually occurs in two separate places in the decision on two different categories of claims. The first category of cl uh, claims is the broadly employed scheme claim that in which the plaintiff alleges that there were 300 or more deeds registered registered over 10 years ago by people that were not before the court and claims that therefore the plaintiff is doing consumers a benefit by declaring all of those timeshares to be void because allegedly a notary who signed it was not commissioned. The court dismisses that claim, the broadly employed scheme claim, with no reference to the argument about attorney's fees at all. In fact, the court finds that that those claims must be dismissed because those claims are not Mr. Engstrom's claims and he was not injured by them. The court says, and I quote, further plaintiff alleges that there have been over 300 recorded uh, uh, by defendants, deeds recorded, all of which have utilized the revoked notary. He's accepting the argument that she was revoked, not is hotly disputed and, and the, the evidence actually at trial showed that she was only suspended. But the court goes on. What, what do you mean by the evidence of trial? We haven't had trial the, yet. The uh, plaintiff, the defendant, uh, did submit affidavits at, before the, the court and... On the motion to dismiss? On the motion to dismiss. Okay, so we haven't had a trial. The, the, no, the court did not reject. In fact, as I'll say in a minute, actually used that evidence. It was not disputed. Uh, but I, I mean, I don't mean to argue that except to say I want to make it clear that um, the, the court is accepting for the sake of this part of the uh, opinion that she was revoked. And the court says... The fact of the matter is, none of these individuals are a party to the case, and there's been no allegation of injury to any of them. The only plaintiff present before the court is Mr. Engstrom, and there's been no allegation of injury to him. Those claims are properly dismissed, and the dismissal should be affirmed of those claims, whatever you think about 
attorney's fees. The court has not said that the reason that that he's dismissing the case is that his attorney's fees uh, in in trying to void the deeds of people who have no idea. These people have no idea. There's 300 of them. They've paid for their timeshares. They've registered their timeshares. The registration is a quasi-judicial act in which they have a right to believe that, they're, that they are uh, completely immunized uh, except under extraordinary circumstances from attack. And the judge says this these claims must be dismissed. And so uh, just the point I want to make is whatever we do on the second claim, which is the suspicious deed claim, whatever we do on that, the court should be affirming the dismissal. It has nothing to do with the issue before, before this court. The second category of claims claim is the, uh, uh, the claim that uh, the suspicious deed claim. That claim is dismissed by the court on more specific circumstances about this case than merely that attorney's fees can never be um, a damage. And um, I think we've, the uh, question and answer that came before hits on a central uh, um, issue, and that is that the court did not, in its findings, uh, accept and include in its findings the claim that the deed was forged. That claim does not appear in the, in the complaint. What the complaint says is these are suspicious uh, documents. In order to, um, to follow the reasoning of the court, I think it's, it's necessary to look at exactly what the court held. The court begins by saying, this case originated when plaintiff's mother passed away leaving a timeshare. Ms. Mrs. Engstrom and the defendants entered a contract for sale with regard to the timeshare on June 7, 2001. Both courts accepted the validity of that document. That contract for sale called for 12 monthly payments. And the payments were beginning on August 1, 2001, if paid as agreed. And then Whitebridge would have issued a deed the following year, over 12 months later. The court continues, on June 7, 2001, Ms. Engstrom signed a joint ownership author authorization authorizing defendant to add plaintiff to the deed. So the finding of the court, which is based on the submission of that document to court, and the basis of the court's decision starts with her authorizing a deed to Daniel. Just one... Is that a, 
I confused everyone with my question to opposing counsel, and I'll probably confuse everyone with my question to you. But is that fact disputed, uh, the signature on the authorization? It, the the um, document came in on the Rule 12 motion with an affidavit saying the documents that have been submitted don't show a complete rendition of the transaction. There is no responsive affidavit, and the court accepts that document in its rendition of the opinion. Rule 12 says that when a document like this is submitted in a, dis in a timely manner, in a dispositive motion, <coughs> the court receives that, you can call it summary judgment, but receives that document unless it's contested, um, or unless the court excludes the document from consideration. That's Rule 12. These documents, the court accepted as valid. There was no evidence submitted that this was a forgery. Counsel, In I, I'm going to stop you there because I think the Court of Appeals determined that a de novo review was appropriate because the district court had treated the motions as uh, motions to dismiss and did not rely on matters outside the pleading, and I don't think you appealed that. So I, I don't, I don't think, um, I don't think you can attack whether things outside the pleading should now be considered. And I think when you're when you're looking at what the district court ruled, you should be looking at pages six and seven, when basically the court was talking about it couldn't fathom what injury Mr. Engstrom had suffered. But I don't think a discussion about the merits is helpful here. Well, with respect, I disagree. I think that... Can the, you respond to my point about did you appeal that to us, the, the, the Court of Appeals we, finding? We, well, first of all, the, the standard for receiving documents with an affidavit, that, that's the same standard. They're both de novo. The, the, the novo standard, it is true, you're absolutely right, that the Court of Appeals did two things at the same time. It accepted these documents. If you look at the opinion, what I'm telling you is in the Court of Appeals opinion. They've also found that the, there was a purchase agreement, that the, the um, uh, authorization was, was, uh, was received. They didn't start with the, the uh, presumption and uh, that, that it was fraudulent, they found that it was not. So just, so is your argument that we should uphold, that we should say the district court was right because they found, they found that there's no disputed fact that the document wasn't fraudulent? I don't understand where you're going with this argument. The claim that this deed is suspicious is based on plaintiff's allegation that there couldn't have been a deed in 2002 because they wait, this document is a year older than it should have been. And in fact, the purchase agreement actually calls for a deed a year later. 
And so the, the, the complaint does not allege a forgery. The complaint alleges a suspicious document. But counsel, it did so for a number of reasons. And for um, purposes of pleading, you know, they haven't had discovery on this yet. They, they don't, they haven't, they're not, they're not required to prove that, some, that something is fraudulent at this point. They have to show, they have to just plead a claim. Well, when it comes to forgery, actually the pleading rules with respect requires that the, that the complaint allege a forgery. That's one of the exceptions to our liberal rules. Um, but I'll move on. The, the, uh, well, before yes. you move on, counsel, you've referred to Rule 12.03, yes. which deals with motions for judgment on the pleadings and talks about what happens when material outside the pleadings is brought in. Was your client's motion in this case under Rule 12.03 or was it under Rule 12.02? Both rules have the same standard. That's not my question. My question is which rule was your motion brought up? I believe it's under 12.02. Okay. So why, why are you quoting 12.03? My understanding is your client brought a motion to dismiss before answering the complaint. And am I Correct. right about that? Yes. Okay, so what does Rule 12.03 have to do with any of this? Both, I, I maintain that under both rules, when the court receives additional material that, I mean, I, I, I don't have the rule in front of me, but I'm, I'm sorry, but both, both, uh, I believe that both rules treat um, documents submitted uh, as the same. You're, you're right. It, the, rule 12.02 does say when matters outside the pleadings are brought in, then the court can consider it a motion for summary judgment. And is, your, is it your position that by bringing in outside materials, your client essentially converted this into a motion for summary judgment with, which should prevail under with the summary judgment standard? To, with respect to the rest of the documents, unless the court says, I won't look at those documents. That's what the rule says. And um, if... So can I just... Yes. Is your argument that if even if we were to find that attorney's fees are damages or is an injury, incurring attorney's fees is an injury under the statute, you still win? Exactly. And, and, the and reason, is that part of the, the case the reason, that's come up to us? The, the reason is this. The letters that were presented to Mr. Engstrom, all of them say, your mother, in so many words, left you a, a timeshare. Um, sorry for your loss. Which do you want to do? Do you want to accept your mother's gift or do you want to keep it? He is given an unrestricted right in each of those three letters. This is the foundation of the district court's decision and the court of appeals decision, I believe. He doesn't, it would be like in the cases where uh, someone goes in to buy uh, fertilizer and uh, 
the, he, they lie to him about the, the pricing structure. And instead of buying the fertilizer, they walk away and don't buy the fertilizer. And then soon. Council, if I may, I, I, I think, um, I think you, we still have to come back to what is properly before us. As, as Mr. Cox said to me about legal causation, that isn't really what's before us. And I'm wondering whether this issue, which is a related one, is, is properly before us. What is it that we have to decide? And I'm not sure that's it. So what is it that's properly before us? Under, on, on a Rule 12. The court said that Mr. Engstrom was not injured because, as he put it, she received, he received what the court describes as an ultimatum, but the ultimatum is either don't accept the timeshare or if you're going to accept it, accept it with its burdens. And the court said, you didn't want the timeshare. You had no interest in the timeshare. You're here in the court saying that what you want is a declaration that you don't own the timeshare, and they were giving you exactly what you wanted. But, but counsel, was, didn't the letter of ultimatum actually prompt three possibilities he could disclaim he could pay the maintenance fees, or he could hire an attorney, get legal advice, and tell him to go pound sand. Isn't there a wasn't, wasn't there a third option for him, which he exercised? Well, that's a theoretical option, but he wanted... Well, it wasn't, okay. it wasn't theory. That's what he did. So, so if his mother made a gift to him, and he's first learning it, and which we assume is correct. He's first learning that his mother made a gift. And the law of gifts is that he then has the right to disclaim it. So can I, so I'm looking at the petitions for review here. And yes. the petition raised is on the issue of whether attorney's fees count as damages. And your response, which I'm looking at, doesn't make the argument you're making now. So I, I for, I think it would be more helpful to me, at least, if you would get to the argument about whether attorney's fees are damages. I'm arguing that attorney's fees are not a damage in this case. Okay. And, and, um, are you conceding, then, that attorney's fees could be damages in another case under this, um, under the, the fraudulent um, statute 325F.69? and then the private cause of action. No, I, 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 I'm not. I just don't think Well, you this... said in this case, so that prompted my question. It, do you think there are other circumstances where uh, attorney's fees could satisfy the injury under the private the, right of action? The only examples of cases that I know about where attorney's fees are claimed successfully involve cases where there are other damages. And, and uh, well, I counsel, think... Counsel, let me interrupt you and give yes. you a hypothetical. There's a shady contractor that's going around doing just a little bit of work and then leaning people's properties for many tens of thousands of dollars. 
So they're really phony liens. The, the consumer fraud scheme is to do phony liens. Um, would, would the cost of hiring an attorney to get rid of the lien on your property be damaged under the Minnesota Consumer Fraud Act? Yes, I think, I think so. Yeah. But, I, but the problem with that case is that the lien itself is a damage. And so it, it, it's, it's not a case that really presents that issue and I don't think Council, in your opinion what is the purpose of this statute in Minnesota this purpose is to encourage people to use the Attorney General's authority like an Attorney General to combat major frauds that that the the end of it doesn't which, say major. It's consumer fraud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, matters of public uh, benefit. So, counsel, let me change my hypothetical You're, to respond to your point that the lien is the damage. The the scheme of the contractor is to threaten to lien by way of demand letters, and the only way the homeowner can figure out if that threat is is viable or not is to hire an attorney to write a, a nasty gram back saying. This is, a, this is a fake threat. Would the cost of hiring the attorney um, to deal with the threat be damaged under the Minnesota Consumer Fraud Act? The threat to me is an initiation of litigation and it's being defended against. I don't see that in, in our case. What I see so is- So you would agree under my hypothetical that would be the, the cost of hiring an attorney to respond to the threat is damage. I think that's not been decided. But do, do Council, I'm trying to figure out what your client's position is here. You're being un, unusually elliptical today. My client has really no interest in making it easy for people to commit fraud. They think they haven't committed fraud. They think that when they sent a letter truthfully giving Mr. Engstrom a choice between taking his mother's timeshare or not, that they were doing something that they had to do. They had a deed from Mrs. Engstrom. I appreciate that, but we're going to have to announce a rule of law here. Yes. And I would like your help in helping us to figure out what the rule of law is. And so in response to my hypothetical, would you agree that retaining an attorney to defend a threat in the situation that I've outlined would be damage under the Minnesota Consumer Fraud Act. I think you can make a great argument that it is. So the answer would be yes. Probably. Yes, probably. <laughs> well, okay, I, I think sorry, I've exhausted I... this line of questioning. I think that the the central fact specific question here is when White Birch says to Mr. Engstrom, your mother um, left you a timeshare, do you want it? And he doesn't want it, then the cost of going off and seeing if there's But counsel, it wasn't as simple as that because there are letters that are saying that were sent to Mr. Ingstrom that essentially said, um, if you don't pay this, we're gonna, we're gonna go after you for these fees. 
You, here's your options. And it, and it was pretty aggressive because it was month after month that these letters were sent. It wasn't simply as you describe it. The letters start out saying, what do you want? And he doesn't respond. And now, from their point of view, his mother has left him a timeshare and they need to know one way or another what he, he's, uh, what he's going to do and uh, he doesn't respond and they say if you don't um, disclaim the deed then there are fees due. My time has almost expired, and I, th I think it's a mistake to start a, a new thought. I, I would just, I would just say, um, come back to my first point, which is that attorneys' fees, in the connect, in connection with the 300 people who have timeshares and are not party to this case, that that case should be dismissed. Uh, it is not consistent with the Consumer Fraud Act to f file a claim on behalf for which the statute of limitations is expired to attack the registered titles of consumers. That's no benefit to anyone and uh, certainly not the people and so, uh, that, that were um, not notified that their titles are going to be uh, attacked, and the ju judge was right in dismissing those claims. Thank, Thank you, you, counsel. Mr. Cox, you have 15 minutes for rebuttal. I, I wonder if you could just, oh, sorry, you should, yeah, put that up so we can hear you. <laughs> I just had a couple um, preliminary questions. So there was some reference in your principal argument to count five, um, allegations in count five uh, of the complaint. As I understand the record, your client did not appeal the dismissal of the common law fraud claim. You didn't appeal the dismissal of count five. Is that correct? Correct. And then with respect to the motion to amend, um, was there any motion to amend brought in the district court? There was not a motion to amend. And under Rule 15.01, would such a motion be timely now? I think it would be timely now, Your Honor, to, to amend the complaint before, uh, I believe there's not been an answer, which has led us to a 1202 rather than a 1203 motion. And uh, so I think it would be timely. In any case, nothing's happened. All we have is a motion to dismiss the proceedings at its very beginning stage. The argument was... But isn't, I mean, aren't you essentially asking <clears throat> us to issue an advisory opinion? I mean, your argument essentially is, we told the judge at the hearing our theory on damages here. And yeah, it's not pleaded in the complaint, but Supreme Court, just remand this thing back to the district court, and then we'll amend our complaint, and then we'll put that theory in the complaint. I mean, doesn't, it, it feels smacks to me, actually, of an advisory opinion from our court. Help me work through that. And the, the only issue raised here, Your Honor, is whether we specifically put the words into the complaint. The issue 
had been joined at every level. That's the the trial court level articulated in its opinion exactly our position and then rejected it. It said the position was that Mr. Engstrom was injured because he was forced to make this choice and hire counsel, right? And it's, it's right in the trial court opinion. It is the focus of the Court of Appeals opinion. Um, uh, opposing party never raised this argument that uh, Rule 12 requires that the specific words be in it, so it hasn't been briefed. Um, it, but what has been briefed is exactly the issue before the court and has been articulated at every level. So the only question is, did we, did, you know, is it proper, is it proper to um, affirm a dismissal on the basis that the specific words were not in the complaint at a Rule 12 proceeding? Well, to be fair, the general theory isn't even in the complaint. The, the theory... Uh, I mean, the, the word injury doesn't even appear in your complaint. No, the word injury is... is the, the specific theory is not articulated directly in the complaint and directly that way. It was, however, the focus of the argument at the trial court and, more importantly, at the hearing. And, more, and it was the basis of the decision. It was the basis of the appeal. It's the only thing that's been argued throughout this, this proceeding all the way back to the trial court. Um, so the only issue is, in Rule 12, is it any theory that can be pled or that can be uh, argued consistent with the complaint? And that is the theory not only consistent with the complaint, but clearly imagined in the complaint uh, and articulated as previously indicated in Count 5. It's in there, and I think consistent with Rule 12, it's, uh, it's properly before this court. Uh, I would raise only two points in rebuttal quickly. Um, one is that uh, counsel says they, that, that the key argument White Birch has is they think they haven't committed fraud. Well, for Rule 12 purposes, to go back to Rule 12, that clearly is not before this court. Uh, fraud has been committed for the purpose of the record here. The second point is, and as argued in White Birch's response brief before this court, was that uh, the, the way it was presented to Mr. Ingram was, Ingstrom was, uh, accept this gift or keep it. Of course, the key document here is Exhibit A to the complaint, and it's not anything like that. Exhibit A says, you are a co-owner. There was a deed. It was filed with the county. This is Torrance property, and you are unequivocally the co-owner. Therefore, you've got two choices. Uh, and he was hounded relentlessly to pay money. So can, I, that, can I just get, so is the argument under the language of the statute that there is an injury here because he retained an attorney and so he's recovering not damages, but attorney's fees? So you don't need, you can get attorney's fees without having any other harm, except for the fact that you had to investigate. Is that what you're, is it, under, is it using the word attorney's fees? Uh, no, our position is no, Your Honor. Our position is that retaining an attorney in response to a fraudulent demand is the injury. So attorney's fees ref refers to the attorney's fees that you incur in prosecuting the litigation in the statute? Uh, no, we, we specifically do not make that argument. We argue that attorney's fees incurred in prosecuting is not, uh, the fraud claim is not the injury here. The injury here is having to retain an attorney. Um, and that's what Lovely Amsler was about, and that's what the Mid-Minnesota Legal Aid and Elder and, Justice... And so what's the, what's the remedy that you're seeking? 
Is it damages? Is it attorney's fees? Is it something else? You know, so I get your argument that there's an injury here, but then injury caused by the act, you can recover these other things. So what are you recovering? Uh, two answers to that question, Your Honor. First, he would recover the attorney's fees engaged in investigating. As damages? As damages. Okay. As That's damages. what I'm getting at. All right. Yeah, he, he would recover that as damages. But, but injury itself, we believe, flows from having to retain an attorney. If no, this court determines that, that out-of-pocket loss is required, he's got it because he did pay money to his attorney. But the position articulated by Mid-Minnesota Legal Aid and the Elder Justice Center, which is consistent with Love v. Amsler, is I think the proper interpretation of the law, which is that if you go to a legal aid attorney, just because you don't pay them, you still suffered injury because you had to retain an attorney to oppose the fraudulent demand. So on my hypothetical regarding these phony mechanics liens or the phony threat to file a mechanics lien, if you had to go to an attorney to get it figured out, that would be out-of-pocket damage and thus injury under the statute. Uh, I agree with everything but the last phrase, Your Honor. That would be injury under the statute. We don't have to. Don't, we don't think we it's have It's injury, to. not damage. And the statute. It, it, it's, it would be both if you paid attorneys. It, let's put it this way. It's injury under the statute that allows you to uh, bring a private right of action here. So what, it, If you paid money, it's also damages that you obtained. We don't think the out-of-pocket damage rule necessarily. Common law fraud applies here, though. Sorry, Justice. Does the common law fraud not apply because of the language of 325F.69 that says whether or not any person has in fact been misled, deceived, or damaged thereby? I mean, how does that affect our, our deliberations here? Uh, I think that issue that you specifically raised, Justice, was re resolved in group health. That's exactly what Group Health says. It says that that language and the Consumer Fraud Act read in parallel with 8.31 subdivision 3A rejects the common law fraud standard for damages. And to answer the prior question, the second level, in addition to damages, this, this complaint actually is focused on and seeks primarily injunctive relief uh, to stop the fraudulent scheme. Uh, so the, the remedy that's focused on here in the complaint is actually the injunction, uh, not, not money damages and, and, and is that what your opposing counsel was getting at in the first part of his argument, that the court dismissed that part of the case on other grounds? Yeah, but they didn't. There's nothing in the record. The court dismissed the Consumer Fraud Act claim on one issue. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry. And the Court of Appeals upheld on one issue, which is what is the meaning of the phrase injury, not even injured by. What is the free meaning of the phrase injured uh, within the private attorney general statute? Yeah, as best I can tell, Mr. Uh, Mr. Von Korf is making the argument that matters outside the pleadings were brought in and the motion to dismiss. It essentially converts it to a Rule 56 summary judgment proceeding. And he argues with the materials that were brought in, then his client wins I think on the merits. Um, can you react to that uh, line of reasoning? Um, I, I think that is fundamentally the argument. I, and I, I think when asked, is it what's your real argument? The argument was, we think we haven't committed fraud. Well, we're here on a Rule 12 motion. It's presumed he's committed fraud. That's the point of the whole complaint. Um, and he, they did argue at the Court of Appeals exactly that, uh, that it was a summary judgment motion and that it was resolved. The Court of Appeals rejected that 
uh, without much discussion. The Court of Appeals has flatly rejected that. That was not appealed. So we're here on a Rule 12 motion. Uh, and and uh, it, so can I just the record is the complaint. This other, so for injunctive relief, you wouldn't even need the private attorney general <laughs> statute, right? Because 325F says it's enjoinable. I mean, that, the, the right to enjoin is right there in the statute. So why do we even have to get, except that That's only there's a public nothing to enjoin here because they've now done what you're seeking the injunction for, right? As a, as a result of settlement of other parts of this case? Uh, two different answers to that question. The first is 325F69 sub 3 uh, makes it enjoinable, but that's a public enforcement right, not a private enforcement right. The private enforcement right exists in 3A, and 3A provides any person injured by a violation of the Consumer Fraud Act may sue for damages together with attorney's fees and equitable relief. So the injunctive authority in 3A is tied to injury, whereas in 3, in the Consumer Fraud Act itself, and in three, the public enforcement right exists. Uh, public enforcement pub right being the, the right of the Attorney General to bring the action? Right, the Attorney General, although actually it's a little known, a little sidebar here, but we've got time. The county attorney technically could bring that claim as well, but they, they haven't done it historically. Um, it, is, it is there for them under 325S69. The second answer to your question, though, is that no, an injunction is still necessary here. The case operates essentially on two levels, and I think this case resolves on level one, which is Mr. Engstrom was sent, and the critical document here is Exhibit A to the complaint. This is nothing like accept a gift or keep it. It, it. That description has nothing to do with the facts of this case. Mr. Engstrom was unequivocally told there's a deed, it's registered with the county, it's Torrance property, you own it. So pay us or execute all these real estate documents. There's, there's no ambiguity here, and then they hounded him. And ultimately, even after admitting that the deed was not registered, they threatened collection and legal action against him. So there's just, it has nothing to do when, when with, I, with I, those facts. And I think what, what's tripping me up is the amici argument. To resolve your case, your client incurred injury because he had to hire and pay a lawyer. And then to seek, I mean, that's one of the pieces of it. And then he had to seek injunctive relief. I mean, he was trying to get, but he, he got the relief in some sense that he wanted, I think. But for the amici who, who are arguing because someone might not pay me, then I'm not going to suffer. I, I don't know that we have to get to that issue. But that's the thing that seems to be, I, I, I think we don't need to, my sense is we probably don't need to get to that issue here. Because that's the part that's conceptually tougher for me. Well, I, I would encourage the court to get to that issue because our position is by retaining an attorney, he was injured. Now, he in fact had paid the attorney. Uh, so if you do require payment, we've got that fact in the record. But we think by retaining an attorney, injury occurred. And that's consistent with the Love v. Amsler case. So in some ways, I think you do need to get to it because the Court of Appeals rejected the Love v. Amsler what, what case. What is it about retaining an attorney that isn't in of itself injury? What if you retain an accountant or a um, real estate consultant? Is, is it injury to retain anybody? Uh, arguably, yes. I think the court would have to look at those facts. We have facts here where an attorney would be the only appropriate person to retain. However, the case we cited from Kansas, uh, you know, finding injury under the Kansas Consumer Protection Act was not an attorney. That was retaining a third-party advocate. And injury was found... an attorney, your client had, had a neighbor who knew a lot about real estate and said, this is phony as a $3 bill, tell them to go pound sand. 
Was it injury to have to talk across the fence to your, your neighbor? You know, the, that would be on a continuum over here and we're over here. Um, if, you know, based on whatever the other facts of that case were, I wouldn't opine, but certainly that's way over here. Uh, on the continuum of what you do in response to a fraudulent demand. Um, certainly not even having to retain. I mean, you could just be emotionally distressed by a fraudulent demand. I mean, Deborah Ingstrom died, okay? And after she passed away, a year later, he gets a letter saying, your mom left you this mess. You are the co-owner of this, even though in 15 years she never told you but this. But the issue of whether emotional uh, distress is sufficient injury under the Consumer Fraud Act is not before us, right? No, it's not before the court. Thank but you. I'm, try I'm trying to just go to your hypothetical, Your Honor, and say that's not where we're at. We're, we're, we are way over here. The other point on the injunction is there is this broader case here. Okay, So our client resolved the matter because he fought back. He hired an attorney, and they fought all the way to the courthouse steps. And on the courthouse steps, they finally conceded, okay, you don't own this, and you don't owe us money, but only because he hired an attorney. But if the complaint taken as true proves to be accurate at the end of the case, this is a scheme. You know, it is unlikely to have been invented for one person here. So your argument is that the court could still issue an injunction barring Birch, White Birch from engaging the scheme against anyone? Absolutely, and that gets to the public benefit test and what it means in the context of a case like this. And that's this. still before, that's still on a live issue. That's still a live issue, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess. <laughs>